This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by our friends at Running Warehouse. For this year's Earth Day, Running Warehouse is celebrating by amplifying sustainable styles from all your favorite brands. We've been loving the Nike Dry Fit and Saucony Outpace shorts, which have been comfortable, super breathable options for spring running. We're also big fans of brands like Jonji and Patagonia, which not only make excellent apparel, but also pivot some of their sales towards environmental causes. Check out the sustainable styles today. Not only will you look good, but you also feel good knowing you're running sustainably. To find the collection, visit the link in our description or head straight to runningwarehouse.com. Hello and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science of the stuff we're putting on our feet. I'm Andrea Myers, and I'm here doing a solo episode of the podcast today to talk about the role that training error plays in developing injury. Unfortunately, running-related injury remains all too common despite improvements in training methods, shoe technology, and access to information. Research has found that the rate of injury in runners really hasn't changed much since the 1970s, which is shocking when you think about all of the improvements in training, knowledge, shoes uh, that have come in those decades since the 1970s. But unfortunately, people are still getting injured quite frequently. The numbers are up to 70% of runners experience a running-related injury, which is way too much. So training error is reasonably thought to play a major role in running-related injury. So today I'm going to discuss what the research says, how that compares to our clinical experience as PTs and coaches, and what you runners can take away from this episode to hopefully help yourselves avoid getting injured in the first place. I've been a PT for 17 years and a coach for 10 years, And I can certainly attest that training error is a problem I've encountered frequently with my patients and clients. And with a little bit of education, I think that people can really avoid some of these common training errors and hopefully avoid injury as well. So today's subjective is, if you have had a running-related injury, do you feel that training error was a part of it? If so, what was the specific error? You can leave a comment on YouTube, send us an email at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com, or leave us a comment through the podcast apps if you can. So we're going to move into our main segment now. And first, we're going to talk about, well, what are the specific variables that are involved in training error? And what does the research say about how those variables do or don't relate to developing an injury? So the most common variables that research looks at is volume, intensity, and frequency, unsurprisingly. And as runners, we know that volume, intensity, and frequency interact with each other. So you can imagine that their individual influence on running-related injury is hard to examine. As with many performance-related topics, there are too many dependent variables to draw solid conclusions regarding the role one factor has in the development of injury. So let's start by just defining these terms. So volume, of course, is defined as miles or kilometers run per week. Intensity, when researchers say intensity, they mean pace. So minutes per mile or minutes per kilometer, depending who's writing the paper. And then frequency means how many runs per week. Are you running five times a week, two times a week, seven times a week? 
we all can see how frequency might contribute to developing an injury if it's increased too quickly. So there was a systematic review by Nielsen et al. in 2012 called Training Error and Running-Related Injury, and they looked at these topics. So a few of the things that they found, first of all, related to volume, um, rapid increases in volume, at what they found was more than 30% may increase injury risk. They also found several studies that found that running more than 40 miles a week is associated with an increased injury risk, but not all. You can imagine, depending on the type of runners they were looking at, for some people, 40 miles a week is like a recovery week. And for other people, 40 miles a week is their biggest week leading into a marathon. So it depends on the type of runners they're including in their studies. Did they include a lot of elite athletes where 40 miles a week is no big deal? Or did they include a lot of newer runners where if they're running 40 miles a week, that may be their peak mileage of the year and one that they only achieve for one or two weeks leading into a marathon. So that's where just looking at volume or just looking at any one of these variables can make it difficult to determine the influence of that variable on the development of injury. Moving on to intensity, studies that looked at intensity or pace have inconsistent results And the author said that the main reason for that is because intensity was self-reported. So first of all, the subjects in the studies were self-reporting how fast they were running. And they were self-reporting how fast they ran in previous training sessions. So whether or not they accurately recalled how fast they ran in all of their sessions was one potential problem. The other thing is, Studies that just look at pace don't completely capture a runner's fitness level. So they were just looking at, well, people who ran faster than eight-minute miles versus people who ran slower than eight-minute miles were people in one of those two groups more or less likely to get injured. Well, depending on the runner, eight minutes a mile could be their easy run pace or it could be their 5K pace. So again, you you need to get more information regarding what those paces mean to have a better understanding of how those paces may or may not relate to that runner's injury. And then thinking about frequency, how many runs per week? So again, it depends on the type of runner you're talking about. If a lot of the subjects in a particular study were elite runners, then five to seven days a week is pretty common. But if you were talking about a newer group of runners who, again, maybe were building up to five days a week, those runners might have been more likely to get injured running five days a week as compared to more experienced or elite runners where five days a week might be like what they do on a recovery week. So again, it's one of the major limitations with just looking at these static measurements or static variables is that they don't give you a full picture of that person's training. So the authors in this study, um, in the systematic review, also concluded that it wasn't possible to to determine the relationship between frequency and injury due to inconsistent results. They did find, also unsurprisingly, 
that newer runners are at greater risk of injury, likely for several reasons. So one of the main reasons is if you're new to running, your body is experiencing all of these new stresses, new stresses on your muscle, tendon, bone, fascia, your cardiovascular system. So if somebody has just started running, do they even possess the appropriate strength, range of motion, flexibility to run with, you don't want to say proper form, but to run with good enough form where they're less likely to get injured? Do they have sufficient dorsiflexion or range of motion? Are they able to hop on one foot? Can they perform 20 to 25 single leg calf raises? Things like that make it more or less likely that somebody's going to get injured running. Another factor that you see in newer runners is that they may have inefficient form or decreased running economy, again, because they're new to it. So their bodies and nervous systems haven't figured out the most efficient way to run yet. And as we all know, that process takes years, if not decades, to really become a master of running. Um, the other, Another thing for newer runners is that any increase in training is going to be a big increase. If somebody starts running, let's say, two miles two or three days a week, so their weekly mileage is four to six miles, even just adding one mile to each of their runs is going to be a pretty big increase compared to somebody who's already running 20 or 30 miles a week, adding a mile to three runs a week is going to be a much smaller percentage of their total training volume. The other factor that might make new runners at greater risk of injury is that they just have less knowledge regarding training and recovery. And a lot of new runners, running feels terrible to them. One, because they're running too hard. Um, Their heart rate is too high for how easy they're supposed to be running. But they just don't know what's normal soreness or what could be a sign of an injury. Um, newer runners are less likely to have a coach. So they're more just like running with friends or doing it on their own. They don't know what to expect and they don't know what to be on the lookout for. So all of these factors contribute to why newer runners are probably at great or newer runners are at greater risk of injury. Another thing that they found in the systematic review in 2012 is that greater running experience may decrease the risk of injury which also may bias the results of studies on running-related injury. So if you have a study on running-related injury, and let's say it's looking at training volume, if your study includes a lot of experienced runners, your injury rates may be different than if your study included a lot of newer runners. So again, anytime you hear that a study found something, and we talk about this all the time on the podcast and in the articles that we write, you have to dive deeper. Well, who are the subjects? Are the subjects similar enough to you if you're trying to learn about yourself? Or if you're a clinician, are the subjects of the study similar enough to your patient population that you can apply the study's results to your patient population. So if you have a study that has a bunch of runners with more running experience, those runners may be less likely to get injured than a study that includes a bunch of newer runners. 
Uh, another reason that more experienced runners are less likely to get injured is they have a larger base to build on, which helps them absorb acute training load better than newer runners. I'm going to talk about that a little more a little bit later. But if you think about somebody who has been running for 15 years and they've been running 50 miles a week for the past five years, let's say, those runners have such a big base to build on, in, not just in terms of their cardiovascular fitness, but their muscular strength, their neuromuscular coordination, uh, their tendons' ability to absorb loading, everything, their running economy, that they're going to absorb changes in their training better than newer runners. And that's something that for some of these training programs look at. For example, Training Peaks gives you a TSS score, which is your training stress score. And it looks at acute training load and chronic training load. And that can help an athlete or a coach manage their overall training to make sure that you're staying in that sweet spot of building fitness, but not overreaching, or conversely, not doing enough to actually build fitness. But I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Another reason that more experienced runners may have a lower risk of injury is that they may just be better attuned to their bodies. So they know if they start feeling a little pain in their foot, they need to pay more attention to it. And if it doesn't go away over a day or two, or if it's getting worse, they'll probably back off of their training, or they might cross train, whereas a newer runner might not know to pay that much attention to little twinges that they feel. Because sometimes when you're new to running, like I said, everything just hurts, especially if you're not building up slowly enough. So experienced runners have so many factors going for them that helps decrease their risk of injury. So when they're included in studies, um, they, they can skew the results in a particular direction. So overall, the authors of the systematic review concluded that it's not possible to identify which training errors were related to running-related injury because, again, there's just too much variability in these studies. Some studies found a relationship between volume and injury. Some studies found a relationship between intensity or pace and injury, but others found the opposite. And again, just too many confounding variables, particularly more experienced runners versus less experienced runners, um, types of runners, that just made the, it difficult for these authors of the systematic review to make solid conclusions. So if the research on static variables is inconclusive, what about changes in training load? I mean, to most people, that sounds logical, right? It's not just, oh, this person runs 40 miles a week, so they're more likely to get injured. But it might be, oh, this person has been running 40 miles a week, but they decided this week they're going to run 65 miles a week, or they decided they're going to run 80 miles a week. Those sudden increases in training load logically would be more likely to lead to injury. But what does the research say about that? 
So in 2018, Damstead et al. did a systematic review on exactly that, whether changes in training load have a relationship with running-related injury. And they concluded that there was very limited evidence that changes in training load are associated with injury. And very interestingly, they specifically found no evidence to support the 10% rule, you know, the rule that we've all heard where Okay, if you're going to increase your weekly mileage, don't do it by more than 10%. Um, That rule, they found no evidence to support that. And they also found that there is no well-defined threshold for increases in training volume. But one thing they said was future studies are needed, of course, to better define the role of changes in training parameters and the relationship to injury. These systematic reviews are relying on other studies that are done, and they're just reviewing the collection of evidence that's out there and drawing conclusions. But if there aren't a lot of high-quality studies to review, then the power of a systematic review is going to be reduced. And that was kind of the, the case here, where there just weren't a lot of studies that have looked at changes in training load and their relationship to injury. So it makes sense that changes in training load may lead to injury, as opposed to static measures like weekly mileage or training pace. But designing studies to measure changes in training load may be more complicated, because you would need to, they would need to be perspective studies, probably, meaning you sign people up, and then you follow them for a certain period of time because then you'd be able to capture all of their training data. I mean, most of us now, well, some of us use Garmin Connect or Strava, or we upload our training somewhere. So it would be possible to do like a retroactive data dump. Um, But again, designing these studies that are looking at changes could be a little more complicated. So moving on to types of injury, We know that some injuries are more likely to be related to changes in volume, and others are more likely to be related to changes in training pace. And Nielsen et al., the same researcher who wrote the first systematic review that I discussed, wrote a clinical commentary on this topic. So interestingly, and I think what they wrote makes a lot of sense, at least to me as a clinician when you think about it. Volume-based injuries tend to occur at the front of the knee. So patellofemoral pain syndrome, IT band syndrome, patellar tendinopathy. They found that these injuries were more likely to to occur in marathon runners as compared to those running shorter races. Um, So as a clinician, you can think, okay, if you have someone, a runner who comes in and they have pain in the front of their knee. And while you're talking to your patient, you're trying to get an understanding of what factors could have contributed to them developing this injury. Knowing what these authors wrote in this clinical commentary, you might start thinking, okay, well, was this a volume-based injury? So you might start asking questions related to that. Have you increased your weekly mileage? Um, has your training changed at all, um, regarding like the volume of running that you're doing in contrast, pace injuries tend to occur below the knee, meaning like the calf, the ankle and the foot. And that makes sense when you think about it. So 
if somebody is doing more running at a higher pace, you're going to have greater propulsive forces required to run at that faster pace. The gastrocnemius and the soleus are the greatest contributors to propulsion, and propulsive forces are greatly increased at faster paces. Plantar fasciitis is also a pace-related injury. Um, We know that the greatest biomechanical strain on the plantar fascia occurs in late stance phase, meaning like right before push-off, where you're transitioning from your midfoot to your forefoot and your big toe is bending to help you push off the ground. And when your first MTP joint, that's the joint, your big toe joint, when it's an extension, that's when the plantar fascia is stretched the most And it's also where you've got the most strain on your plantar fascia. So again, faster running, greater strain on the plantar fascia. Another pace-related injury that these authors identified is Achilles tendinopathy, which interestingly enough is the most common injury in elite runners, which I guess makes sense if you think about elite runners tend to spend a lot of time running fast regardless of what event they're doing. Um, Gastrocnemius injuries are also more common at age 40, and that's actually the focus of Matt's research. So definitely check out our podcast episode on Masters Runners for more information on that. So gastrocnemius, soleus, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendinopathy, all of these injuries were identified as pace-related injuries by these authors. So a major drawback of this paper that they wrote is that they looked at a, you know all the studies that are out there on running-related injuries, but only half, actually less than half of the running-related injuries that were in these papers were categorized as pace or volume-based injuries. So there's this whole other mass of running-related injuries out there that they didn't consider to be related to pace or volume, like meniscal tears, sacroiliac joint pain, back pain, hip pain. So their discussion is a little bit limited, but I think this provides useful information to both runners and clinicians in just kind of guiding your thinking to, well, okay, they have pain here, they have this injury, and what potentially could have caused it, and what's the solution to get rid of it, and then make sure that it doesn't come back in the future. There's one more article that I want to discuss before getting into some more clinical discussions of training error. Um, In 2018, Johnston et al. examined 95 endurance athletes, so they weren't all runners. They were cyclists, rowers, swimmers, triathletes, and runners. And it was a prospective study, meaning they signed these athletes up for the study, and then they followed them for 52 weeks. And they were looking at their training data. They were looking at whether or not they developed a new injury during that time. And they actually found that injury in the previous 12 months was associated with developing a new injury. And the highest highest risk was for those with three or more previous injuries. And of course, this makes logical sense. If you've had an injury in the past, 
if you haven't fully addressed all of the factors that caused that previous injury, you may be more likely to have that injury come back or develop a different injury as a result of compensation for that old injury. Another interesting thing they found, which gets us back to what I was talking about with acute and chronic training load, is they found that the lowest risk of injury occurred when acute training load was low to moderate and chronic training load was moderate to high. What does that mean? So acute training load refers to your current week's training. And the way they determine that is it depends on each researcher's or like Training Peaks uses its own proprietary formula, but RPE, rate of perceived exertion, heart rate data. If you're a cyclist, they'll use power data, um, might use pace related to your lactate threshold. But your acute training load is the sum of the load of your current week's training. And then chronic training load is the average of the last four to six weeks training. For example, the researchers use the last four, Training Peaks uses the last six. So what does that mean? It emphasizes the need for athletes to have a big training base, meaning you can't just like hop off the couch and decide to start training for a marathon. And I think we all know that, but it also means that if you've been consistently running like 10 to 20 miles a week, you can't just decide that you're going to dive into marathon training. You need to slowly build up to greater mileage before starting to train for something hard like a marathon. It also means that people who have a high chronic training load are more able to absorb increases in their acute training load because they have that bigger base So an increase in their training load is not going to be as impactful as as for somebody who's maybe been running 15 or 20 miles a week and then, let's say, suddenly jumps to 40 miles a week or someone who's been doing one faster training session a week suddenly jumps to three. So building up that base long before you have a goal event is really key for helping reduce um, injury risk. And I would really encourage people who are thinking about running a marathon someday, don't just think about it as, okay, I'm going to get my 12 to 16 week plan and then I'll be ready. If you know you want to do a marathon in 2024, start gradually building up your training base now. Like slowly increase your weekly volume slowly increase some longer tempo runs. That way, when it's time to actually do that 12 or 16 week marathon specific training block, you're going to have that base that's going to let your body absorb that training so much more easily. So just keep that in mind. If you know, you've got a marathon as your goal, or even if a half marathon is your goal, and you've been running 5k's, The better base you build before you start doing that specific work, the more successful you're likely to be. So I've talked a lot about the research that's out there regarding training error and development of injury. And the research is, you know, kind of disappointing. Um, There aren't a lot of solid conclusions that can be taken from the research, which is often the case 
anytime you're talking about medicine or sport performance, because when you're dealing with people, it's so hard to reduce people to a single variable. There are so many factors that go into why somebody might get injured. And it's hard to design a study to tease out just the effect of one variable on the rate of injury. So as often occurs in healthcare and medicine, the research might not be super strong for a given intervention, but our clinical experience can help guide us in what to do for somebody when the research doesn't have a clear answer. And certainly physical therapists and coaches um, have lots of experience in, well, what factors tend to lead to somebody getting injured? And I can say in my experience, both as a physical therapist and as a coach and as an athlete, um, inadequate recovery in general is one of the biggest factors in people getting injured. And when I say recovery, I'm not just talking about like recovery days or rest days. Rest days are important, but so is active recovery, meaning instead of taking a day completely off exercise, still get out and move, whether that's going for a walk or going for an easy bike ride or an easy swim. I have certainly found since getting back into running in the past few years that I need active recovery days as opposed to days off. When I was cycling, I needed a day off a week. And I was also training, you know, 15 to 20 hours a week. So I did need a day off. But for running, I think because of the high impact nature of running, I do better when I have active recovery days as opposed to days completely off. So that's something to learn about yourself. When the goal of a rest or recovery day is recovery, what helps you get there? Is it doing nothing or is it doing something very easy that moves your body and helps you recover, helps you recover for the next day's training and in a couple days for your next hard day. So that's something to think about with regard to yourself, because what works for me isn't going to work for the next person. So the better you understand how you respond to training, the better. Another really important factor in recovery is sleep. You can do the best training in the world, but if you're only sleeping four hours a night, your body isn't going to be able to absorb the training you're doing because, of course, sleep is when our bodies actually repair. So that's when our muscles get built back up again. That's when our immune system goes to work. That's when growth hormone goes to work. So if if you're sleeping four hours a night and you have a big running goal, you really need to figure out how you can get a little more sleep. Otherwise, you're setting yourself up for injury, burnout, getting sick. So sleep is key. Another thing that's related to recovery that I don't think a lot of people acknowledge is stress. So if you have a crazy job, or if life at home is really crazy, or if it's a combination of all of the above, if you're stressed all the time, you're not going to be able to absorb the training you're doing because the hormones that are involved in stress are going to interfere with your training. So if you have 
if you know that the next three months are just going to be super stressful because of what's going on at work or what's going on in your family or whatever, that might not be the best time to train for a marathon. So, and I think it also is important to just give yourself some grace in terms of you really can't do everything all at once. So if you've got a lot going on in your life, let yourself back off a little bit on training. Don't stop because exercise is a great stress reliever, but you can't expect that you're going to perform at 100% if you're majorly stressed out in a bunch of other factors. So just take all of that into account when planning your training and thinking about how you're responding to training and how well you're recovering. On a similar topic of rest, um, I it's a pretty common thing, the weekend warrior, right? People who are super busy during the week, they maybe get a couple like 30 minute runs in. And then on Saturday and Sunday, they really hit it hard. They do a hard workout on Saturday with intervals, and then they go do their long run on Sunday. And that is setting you up for getting injured because your body is just not accustomed to that huge dose of exercise Saturday and Sunday, followed by low activity during the week. So if like some people just have lives and jobs where it's impossible to exercise during the week, you might think about how you can balance out what you do on the weekend so that you're less likely to get injured. And that might mean maybe doing a shorter interval day on Saturday and then doing your long run, but making sure that you keep it really easy. Because I know that a lot of us, it's so easy to run a little too fast on our easy long run days, but it's those long, slow days that give us the best metabolic benefits in terms of fat burning and um, other factors that help improve our endurance. Another thing that I see all the time is people training at inappropriate paces. So your training paces should be based on your current fitness, not a goal race time. Like if you're doing a marathon in four months and your goal is to run, let's say, 3.30, your paces four months out shouldn't be based on what you're hoping to run. Your paces should be based on your current fitness. And how do you figure out your current fitness? Well, you could do a time trial, like a mile or even like a mile and a half time trial can be a good test of your aerobic fitness. And then there are a bunch of calculators online where you can input that time and get your training paces because they're basically using those paces to estimate your VO2 max and setting your paces from there. The other thing I've seen is some people are using training paces based on a race that they did six months ago, or even a year ago. And that may or may not be their current fitness level. You might be fitter than you were at that time, or you might be less fit. And now all of your training paces are too aggressive Meaning when you're doing what you think is like a lactate threshold interval, you're really doing an interval at like your 5k pace. And that can lead to a lot of frustration because 
of course, you're not going to be able to do threshold type intervals at 5k pace, it's going to feel like you're dying. So I really encourage people test yourself often to determine your current fitness. Like I have my athletes test every eight to 12 weeks if they're not racing. Um, Sometimes more often than that, depending on their situations, just so you can get a sense of where the current fitness is and make sure that those zones are correct. Another common uh, training error that I see is people use an inappropriate mix of high and low intensity sessions. So some people can handle three workouts a week and recover between them just fine and get fitter and they don't get injured and they don't get sick. And some people need two and some people need maybe one every five days. And the only way to figure that out is to try, but it's always better to start on the easier side than the harder side. Um, I think for most people, two harder workouts a week is the right amount. But you have to recover enough between hard sessions. Otherwise, you're again could be setting yourself up for injury. I've seen a lot of posts on social media lately about the importance of consistency in training. And I really like that people are talking about consistency So if you can't do your prescribed training because every few weeks you either get sick or something starts hurting or you just feel exhausted, that is a sign that something in your training needs to be adjusted. You shouldn't have these like high peaks where you're training a ton and then crashes where you have to take three or four days off because you're tired or sick or injured. That is a sign that your training volume, your training intensity, the amount of recovery you're getting, something needs to change. Or it could be a sign that you're not sleeping enough or you're not eating enough or, you know, one of those recovery factors is missing in your training. But if you are one of those people who has that pattern a lot where, you're needing to take several days off because you just feel totally exhausted. Talk to your coach if you have one. If you don't have a coach, think about where you could dial back your training so that it's something you can handle consistently rather than having to take all of this unplanned time off. Another thing I see a lot in the clinic is people who get injured adding a new variable in training. And when I say a new variable, it could be someone who's a road runner suddenly decided to take up trail running or someone who normally only rides on or runs on flat roads starts running in the hills or someone who always used to run on this nice, perfect bike path is now running on crowned country roads, you know, that are higher in the middle. Could be shoes that are significantly different from their usual shoes. Let's say somebody decided to try minimal shoes, whereas previously they were running in more traditional, like 10 or 12 millimeter drop shoes. Any of these new variables have the potential to cause injury. If some, for the first example, someone suddenly starts trail running, you can immediately think about all of the new physical challenges related to doing that. Now you're on uneven terrain. Often trails have a lot of elevation change. 
the softness of the terrain is variable. So you could be running on really hard packed dirt for a half mile and then you're on sand that has you sliding all over. So these new challenges, if you start doing too much of it too fast, could lead to an injury. Similarly, if the type of terrain you're running on changes, whether you're doing more hills which is often the case, people suddenly decide they need to add more elevation change into their training. Like if they're training for a hilly race, that could cause muscle strain. Also, I so living here in Connecticut, it's pretty hilly. But I've had a number of patients who, let's say, go on vacation to somewhere flat like Florida. And they come back with often IT band pain. Because they're not used to running on dead flat terrain. They're used to that variability in step length, joint angles, muscle challenge. And all of a sudden, they're on dead flat roads with no change in any of those running factors. And now they're feeling pain somewhere. So keep that in mind. If you sign up for a dead flat marathon and you live somewhere hilly, You need to start doing a lot of training on flat terrain, but you need to ease into it so your body gets used to that. Um, Crowned roads are another common problem here in Connecticut. They're everywhere. Um, They make your run kind of crooked. So I encourage people to switch sides when they can safely or drive somewhere where maybe they can run on a bike path or where there are sidewalks. It's okay to run on crowned roads a little bit, but if all of your training is done on a crowned road, you could be setting yourself up for an injury just due to the asymmetry of those roads. And, you know, we've talked plenty about shoe changes, and we know that shoes themselves do not cause injury, but it's the biomechanical factors associated with those shoes that could contribute to developing an injury. So the main thing is, if you're running in one type of shoe, don't suddenly change to a shoe that is different enough in terms of the biomechanical challenges it's going to put on your body. The minimal minimalist shoes are a great example of that. Um, but even so, let's say you've been running in minimalist shoes, and you decide that your feet need a little more protection, and you go from a zero drop shoe to a 12 millimeter drop shoe that could potentially cause an injury as well because, again, it's a new stimulus. And if your body isn't ready for that stimulus, it could cause some pain. And lastly, um, which and this is a huge topic, which I won't get into, but inadequate nutrition, underfueling, you could be doing everything in the world right, but if you aren't taking in enough food, hydration, electrolytes, you could easily set yourself up for injury. And I would really encourage you to check out our podcast that we did with Celine Yeager and Jen Giles in 2022. So we talked a lot about the importance of nutrition, particularly for female athletes. Um, And we've also got our nutrition reviews on the Doctors of Running website. And Jen breaks down what the different macronutrients are, why we need them, how much we need, and what are some good sources of them. But if you're not fueling your body, your body is going to start taking 
from your own body to fuel your training and eventually your body will start to break down. So make sure that you're getting in enough nutrition for what you're doing so that you can keep training and not get sidelined by an issue. So I hope that you've found some useful information today about how training error can possibly contribute to injury. Um, I hope I've cleared up some misconceptions that are out there about what does or does not contribute to injury. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll leave us a review on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Send us an email at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. We love to hear your feedback. Thank you for listening and see you next time.